we're going to dive into our sermon this week. And I said we're going to continue what we started last week. And so if you have a Bible, would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a red one nearby. And if you're following along in the red Bible, it's on page 471. So we're continuing our sermon series titled, Hope Has Come, and we're going to be looking at the next story in the Gospel of Matthew. And all throughout this sermon series, we're asking really this question, who is this child that we celebrate on Christmas? Who is Jesus? And last week, we asked, uh, we asked who is this child, and we learned that Jesus is God's answer to the question, God, where are you? And we learned that in Jesus, God was declaring, I am with you, always. And this week, we're asking a bigger question, another question. Uh, the question is this, what should we do or how should we respond when we come to Jesus? That's what the story of the three wise men is all about. Maybe you're familiar with the popular song, We Three Kings from Orient Are. We're looking at that story from Matthew chapter 2, and we're asking, what should our response to Jesus be? In our Representing Jesus to Our Neighbors class this last week, we talked about how when we come with the message of the gospel, people respond in a variety of ways. Look, some people will, will receive it and, and accept it for themselves, and that's beautiful, but other people won't. They might ignore it, they might reject it, they might hate it, they might reject you. But we've learned that when we present the gospel message, when we tell people about Jesus, it is a declaration of truth, and you have to respond to it. You, you can't just let it pass. It is too massive of a truth declaration to just ignore. We have to respond to Jesus. And this story is going to teach us what does it look like to respond in the right way. So even in this passage, we're going to see some people reject Jesus, others ignore him, some hate him, some worship him. And that's that last bit, worshiping Jesus, that we're going to focus our attention on in this story. In fact, in this short story, the word worship is used three times in, in the beginning, in the rising climax, and also in the conclusion. Matthew is hinting at us that worship is the theme of this story. And, and more than that, not only is Matthew, the writer of this gospel, emphasizing worship here at the beginning, if you remember how he closes his gospel at, at, at what's called the Great Commission, the disciples all gather around Jesus who has been risen from the dead, and what do they do? They worship. When an author begins and ends a story with the same theme, you know that he's trying to, or they're trying to emphasize something. And we're going to look at just that. When we come to Jesus, it is proper for us to respond with worship. We are going to come and worship the king. So would you please follow along as we read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over a place where the child was. When they saw that star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good that you sent your son to be born into this world. He was born a king through your spirit. Lord, speak to us the words that will bring us before him so that we too may worship him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're going to follow along in the notes in your bulletin, here are my three points this morning. One, everyone worships something. Two, we worship what we love. And three, who is this baby that we should worship him? One, everyone worships something. Two, we worship what we love. And three, who is this baby that we should worship him. So let's begin. First, everyone worship something. Look at verse 2. It says that the wise men have traveled from the east. They've probably traveled many months with a, a big caravan, maybe possibly soldiers to protect them along the way. They have come for months in search for the one who has been born king of the Jews. And it says that they have come because they saw his star when it rose, and they have come to worship him. Why would Gentiles, foreigners, astrologers who are watching the stars come and worship a baby? Well, simply put, because everyone was made to worship and all worships something. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not. We all worship something. Now, that word worship, though, I need to be careful because not everyone, I think, agrees or knows what we mean by worship. And if you haven't grown up in the church or in a faith community, worship is a strange word. Even for Christians, though, we don't agree always on what it means to worship. If I say worship, there's probably a lot of you here who think immediately singing songs, even raising hands in praise and, you know, doing the little sidestep sway that we do. For some of you, that's what it means to worship. And others uh, conjure up this idea that might be more like a Catholic mass, where there's uh, chanting and re- reciting things and standing up and sitting down, and there's rituals, and that's what it means to go and, and worship is sort of going through 
those motions. And for others, you know, you say, oh, that's so small of a definition. Really, to worship is to, to let your life be one of love and self-sacrifice. That's what it really means to worship. If, if Christians can't agree on what it means to worship, then how are we supposed to expect non-Christians around us to understand even what we mean by that word worship? And I think that this is actually a symptom or a characteristic of our postmodern and secular culture that we live in. Because there are other parts of the world that completely understand the word worship. My wife and I spent a significant amount of time in India a number of years ago. And in India, Hinduism is by far the largest religion there. And even though we were in the most secular and Western, not secular, Western part of the country in Mumbai, everyone that we met had this great understanding of what worship was. And for their understanding, it was similar to what we see in the Old Testament. Worship is associated with going to the temple. And there's sacrifices even that are made. And there's rituals and there's mantras and there's body postures to take. There's idols. There's objects of worship. We were there. We took a vacation briefly just south of the city to this retreat house for our team to retreat in. It's like a hotel kind of thing. And even in this house, there was a room designated as the worship room. We'd open the door, and it was like this big walk-in closet, and there was an idol to a Hindu god and candles and a prayer mat. You know, in, in the U.S., we don't have that. You go to a hotel, and you sometimes find like a Bible or a Book of Mormon in the side table. In India, they have closets for worshiping idols. And so that we don't understand worship isn't a symptom of humanity. It's just a symptom of our culture. We don't understand or have categories for this kind of concept. But it's true, whether you're in India or in Ohio or Cleveland, everywhere we look, people are worshiping something. It might not be an idol. It might be something different. And in fact, in today's Western society, it's largely not idols. It is something a little bit more metaphysical. Think, for example, wealth or status or power. These are these non-tangible things in which we worship. And here's a working definition of what it means to worship. It means to place uh, value and admiration and appreciation and, and obedience and value on something taken to its extreme. You know, it's, it's good to admire things, but it's not good to admire in such a way that it's taken to its extreme and that it occupies every facet of your heart. To worship something is to put an inordinate amount of value into something, so much so that it, it begins to demand from you. Sometimes these idols, these things that we worship, demand sacrifice, that you give up other things in order to pursue it. Maybe it is wealth or status or power. Or maybe it's self-image or romance or companionship. These captivate our desires, and we are willingly giving ourselves over to them in pursuit of them. But don't just take it from me. In 2005, the 
well-known novelist, David Foster Wallace, who was a, a secularist, an atheist, a, a, an influential postmodern writer who is credited with largely influencing the, the literary world of his day. He said this in 2005 at a commencement address at Kenyon College. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else that you choose to worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. If you worship your body and your beauty and your sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. When time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will never, ever, you will need ever more power over others to numb you from your own fears. Worship your intellect seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about all of these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings of our heart. Everyone worships something. The only question is, what do we worship? Everyone worships something. What do we worship? Well, King Herod in our story, I believe, has fallen prey to worshiping something. King Herod, you might not know this, was he was appointed king of the Jews. He, he was only half Jewish himself. And when the Roman Empire came and occupied the Palestinian land, the Roman Empire established quasi-kings, people from the area who would reign over the region, and yet they didn't have real power because they were always under the thumb of the Roman Empire. But King Herod loved it. He loved the status that he had, the power and authority that he had. He, he took his wealth and he, he built from the Roman Empire great palaces, and athletic complexes, and bathhouses, and he invited people from the Roman Empire to his holiday house in Damascus to entertain them because he needed to control the position that he had. He was so worried and concerned about losing his place of authority that he had at least one wife and at least five children murdered because he was fearing that they would rise up and take his place. Caesar Augustus has said that it is better to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. Herod was an evil man because he was paranoid that someone would come and take away his power. It consumed him. It drove him crazy. And when he heard that there was a child born the king of the Jews... He trembled. He was fearful that this little child would overthrow his kingdom. So we learn later he actually does intend to kill baby Jesus. But the point is this. Everyone worships something. Now I hope that none of us in this room go to the point of needing to kill in order to hold on to their thing of worship. But it's still true. We all worship something. We all have something in which we are willing to do almost anything to either have or maintain. What is it for you? Maybe it is wealth and status. 
Maybe it is the lifestyle that you've accumulated over the years. Maybe it is a relationship. You're willing to endure an unhealthy relationship because you like the way that you feel that that someone is there with you. What is it that we worship? As we continue the story, there's another group of characters who will come and will show us, who will help us understand that not only do we worship something, we worship what we love. Let's look at verse 4. King Herod was troubled, and it says that assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which is a messianic prophecy foretelling that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judah, the city of David. These chief priests and the scribes, they were the religious leaders of the day. If you think of the scribes as the teachers of the law, the ones that taught in the synagogue, the ones that studied the scriptures, they were the ones that set the rules for the culture and the society. They were the the seminary trained, the socially and theologically conservative leaders of the day. They were the Pharisees, if you are familiar with them. And the chief priests, they're sort of on the other side. They aren't in the synagogues, they're at the temple. They stay in Jerusalem and run the city. They, they oversee the worship at the temple. They're the political leaders of the Jewish people. And so you've got sort of both parties, the Pharisees, and, and these are called the Sadducees. And they've gathered together. They usually don't work together, but King Herod says, come and tell me where this Messiah is to be born. And so they put their heads together. They open up their Bibles, and they look, and they find the answer. They say, King Herod in Micah, there is this prophecy that says that the Messiah will be born in the city of David, in Bethlehem. Now, this alone doesn't surprise us. It shouldn't. You know, they are the scholars of their day. They are the religious leaders. They know their scriptures. They believe in their hearts that God is going to send a Messiah, a ruler, who is going to deliver and save their people. And so it shouldn't surprise us that they say, hey, we know what's going on. Here's what the scriptures say. Here's what we believe. This is going to happen. But what is surprising is that when the wise men go to Bethlehem, the scribes and the priests do not follow. They stay in Jerusalem. They know all the answers. They've got this deep conviction of what God is going to do. But when it comes to actually going and worshiping Jesus, they don't budge. They don't budge. Why? It's because we don't worship what we know. We don't even worship what we believe in. We worship what we love. Our worship comes primarily out of our heart, not out of our head. These people knew all the answers. They even believed all the right things. And yet their hearts were not overflowing in worship. What I'm getting at is this. It is our heart, our core, the center of our being, where our devotion and worship come from. Contrary to popular sentimentalism here in the U.S., the heart is not the center of emotions, according to the Bible. The heart is the center of our will. We make decisions flowing out of our heart. It is the fulcrum of our lives. It is the seat of our will 
is the engine that drives the rest of our body. When our heart is drawn something, drawn to something, the rest of our body flows with it. It's like a compass. And when it points in north, the rest of it, the rest of our bodies just flow with it. It's drawn and attracted. And so our mind, our, our, our thinking, and our, even our beliefs flow out of what our heart is tuned to. Our desires, our longings, our loves. The Enlightenment philosopher Rene Descartes said this, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. And what he was trying to do was to simplify all of human existence down into its sort of fundamental parts. And he said, the most basic thing about who we are as people is that if we think, then we are someone. But here's the problem with thinking in that way. Have you ever found yourself experiencing a gap between what you think and what you do? Have you ever experienced the dissonance between what you know to be true and what your body and desires actually lead you to accomplish? Maybe you've sat through a riveting sermon here at Story Church and you resolved yourself that night to say, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to change my behavior. I know now it's true. I know what God wants me to do. And by Tuesday afternoon, it's gone. Or, or maybe you've been convinced. Uh, you've read all the books and you said, all right, the diet that I need to follow is this. I've, I've read all the biology. I know the chemistry. I know what I need to do. And yet you get to the store you know what you should buy, and yet your heart really wants that comfort food. Have you ever experienced that dissonance between what you know to be true and what you actually do? We are not fundamentally thinking beings. We are fundamentally loving beings. It is out of our desires that flow the rest of our body. And so it is out of the desires of our heart that overflows worship. These scribes and priests knew all the answers. They knew their scriptures. They knew that Messiah was to be born. They believed that one day God would send a Messiah. They knew that they were supposed to know. They believed what they were supposed to believe, and yet in all of their knowledge and conviction, it did not compel them to go and worship. And this indifference to Jesus stands in complete contrast to how the wise men actually do respond when they get there. Like they go south to Bethlehem and they follow the star and it lands above the house. And when they see that it's landed above the house, what do they do? It says that they rejoice greatly with exceeding joy. It's almost like the English doesn't encapsulate the Greek there. There's, there's actually four words, four different words in the Greek that say something along the lines of they greatly rejoice with great joy greatly. I mean, it is an overflow of emotions because in their depths of their heart, they know that they have come to the one who will fulfill all of their desires. And so they bow down and they worship. We all worship something. And we're going to worship what we love. So who is this baby that we should worship him? The text continues, and the wise men bring their treasures. They open up their boxes, and they give these gifts, gold and frankincense and, and myrrh, the, these rather extraordinary gifts. And, you know, you might have heard that they correspond to the different parts of Jesus' life, and there's nothing in the text that really suggests that they knew anything more about who this child was. 
But he, they brought expensive and valuable and wonderful gifts to show honor and glory and respect to this baby. Why? Because this was the one who would be born king of the Jews. This is why they came in the first place. They came to Herod and said, we're coming to find the one who is born king of the Jews. And they come and they worship him. But he's not just king of the Jews. The very presence of Gentiles there suggests that, that the king of the Jews is going to be bigger than just for Jews. He is the Lord's Messiah, the one promised from generations ago who would draw all peoples from the earth to come and worship. He is the Lord's anointed. He is the Christ and the kingdom that the Messiah is going to establish is gloriously wonderful. It is the hope that the whole world is longing for. The desires of all of the nations are found in this king and in his kingdom. It would be one of peace and righteousness where there would be flourishing. There would be no pain or suffering. When we fill our hearts with this longing for this kingdom, and then we find out that the king has come, our hearts overflow in worship. And our hearts are longing for this kingdom, right? Look, it, it is so easy to look around the world and recognize that this world is not the way that it is supposed to be. There is death and disease and fear. There is pain and suffering. There is corruption. There is lying and cheating. This world, this kingdom is not the way that it is supposed to be. And yet into the darkness comes a new king, the one who is the Lord's anointed, who will establish his kingdom forever. Matthew is showing us that the king is here and with him comes the kingdom. The whole Old Testament points to this king. And the whole New Testament is, is in light of who this king is and what it means to be part of that kingdom. The whole Bible gives us hints of what it means to participate in this kingdom. In fact, Matthew's gospel emphasizes worship, not just at the book ends, but all throughout. And every time, every time Matthew uses the word worship, he is giving us a hint at what it means to be part of this kingdom. When Jesus is tempted by Satan, he responds by saying that it is the Lord alone who will be worshiped, hinting that in Jesus' kingdom, Satan has no more power. When Peter is walking on the water, after being fearful, he falls and Jesus saves him. And the disciples bow down and they worship him, hinting that with the king, Jesus' fears are cast out and there is peace forevermore. When the leper is healed, he worships Jesus, hinting that in the coming kingdom, all disease and sickness, all social and relational stigma and isolation will be done away with. There will be individual and communal flourishing. When the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile, comes begging like a dog to receive mercy, she bows and worships Jesus, hinting that in God's kingdom, it is an international, global kingdom drawing all peoples to himself. And finally, when the disciples see the risen Christ, they bow down and worship, because in God's kingdom, death will be no more. This is the glorious kingdom of the king Jesus. Herod hated the king. The religious leaders ignored the king, but the wise men came and worshiped the king. 
Who is this baby that we should worship him? He is Christ the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord Almighty, the one who was, who is, and who is to come, the first and the last. He is our king, and yet he is unlike any other king. What king calls you his friends? What king invites the children to come to him? What king knows your name? What king do you know would give up his life for you? The hope of Christmas is not just that Jesus, our king, has come, but our king, the very son of God, stepped down from his throne, took on flesh, and lived a life of humble servanthood, obedience to the point of even death on the cross. The more we see who this is that we worship, the more that we know what he has done for us, the greater our affections and desires for him grow. And as our heart's desire for him grows, there is less and less room for competing desires. It's almost as though as our heart for Jesus increases, it explodes away these false affections. The king of the universe came down into the world to bring us hope. And through him, through his life and death, our punishment for sin is absorbed on the cross. He gave up everything for us. It is appropriate for us to come and worship him and give him everything that we have. When we see that Jesus came and gave everything for us, it is appropriate for us to ascribe unto him all value, admiration, honor, obedience, respect to the extreme. This is exactly how the Apostle Paul almost concludes his letter to the Romans. In chapter 12, he says, In light now of the mercies of God, present yourselves, your whole selves, as a living sacrifice to him. This is your true spiritual worship. Worship is not less than singing songs, but it is far more. Worship is not less than knowing God's word, but it is far more. Worship is not less than coming here to church and, and going more. The, the motions even. It is not less than that, but it is so much more. Worshiping King Jesus is coming before him, bowing down and saying, you have given all of yourself to me. Here is all of myself to you. Use me for your glory and for the good of your kingdom in this place. Brothers and sisters, let us come and worship the king. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you, you are so good that you sent your son to be born the king, the one who will set everything right, the one who has come to bring us hope. Follow the example of the wise men, Lord, through your spirit. Stir up in our hearts a deep affection for your glory. That it would drive away what has fallen within our hearts. Let us present our whole bodies to you now in worship, in obedience, and of sacrifice to your kingdom. We pray this in 
the name of your son, Jesus, our great king. Amen.